Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell and I'm flying solo this week. Father Peter is out this week with his family, so you're stuck with me. So hopefully we'll be a, a little bit of a briefer podcast than usual, but we are going to be looking at the readings for the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we're just going to jump straight in. So the first reading that we have this week coming up is from the book of Zechariah. We're looking at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 145, verses 1 through 2, 8 through 9, 10 through 11, and 13 through 14. Our second reading, we're trucking along right through the uh, book of Romans. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and then jumping to 11 through 13. And then finally, our gospel is coming from Matthew as usual. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So that is our readings today. And I got to tell you, you guys, um, at first glance, these readings didn't seem like they had a whole heck of a lot to do with each other. Um, so it took a little bit of digging, uh, but I think there's some some interesting insights in this. So yeah, I'll share them with you. Um, the first one, obviously, is from the first reading, Zechariah. Zechariah is not one of those books we hear a whole lot about. Um, we don't see it show up in the liturgy, in the Catholic liturgy very often, but when it does, it's, um, it kind of packs a punch. So the, the it's, it's a funny thing. If you read through it, um, the reading we actually get from Zechariah is the basis for the prophecies that are being told when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's basically the Palm Sunday prophecy. So as Zechariah says, again, chapter 9, says, Thus says the Lord, uh, Rejoice heartily, O daughter Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter Zion. See, your king shall come to you. A just savior is he, meek and riding on an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. He will banish the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The warrior's bow will be banished, and he shall proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. Which, again, if you have any familiarity with that passage, is probably from Palm Sunday. But the context here is actually really important. So Zechariah is one of the latest of the prophets. He shows up pretty late in the game. And Zechariah uh, shows up around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophet called Haggai. So kind of toward the tail end of salvation history. And basically what's going on is this. Um, after Israel was, was basically destroyed. So remember Israel got formed into this nation, 12 tribes became a kingdom. There was a big civil war, and part of the nation was just totally wiped out by a nation called Assyria. And then the kingdom that was left, the Davidic kingdom down the south, Jerusalem and the temple, that was totally wiped out. Well, not totally wiped out, but it was it was attacked and uh, leveled, the city at least, by the Babylonians in the late 500s, 586. And so after the Babylonians took Israel off to exile, which again, remember, that was what so many of the prophets in the Old Testament were talking about. Daniel gives a little insight into the story of what it was like in the exile. But then after that, a new nation takes over as kind of the world superpower, the, the Persians, and they allow the Israelites, the Jewish people, to go back to Jerusalem and resettle the temple and rebuild the city. So this is happening after they've been allowed to kind of come home. Now, not everybody came home because, quite frankly, after the exile in Babylon, there wasn't really a home to come to. Israel had been wiped out. Jerusalem was leveled. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't anything. And so some people come back. Other people stayed up in uh, Babylon, which would eventually become Iraq. 
um, the Persian Empire. Other people settled in all sorts of other places along the way, which is why when St. Paul shows up many, many, many years into the future, there's little Jewish outcroppings all over the empire because not everybody went back after the exile. But for those who did go back, there was a bit of a, uh, a lot of hardships. So Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. And basically what happens is this. This is why the prophet Zechariah is called by God to go to the people. And Haggai is a contemporary as well. This is a hard situation, and this is a time of great darkness. And so Israel is, yeah, they're back in the land. They're beginning to rebuild. Even the Persians have given them some, some funds, some money to help rebuild the temple. But it, it's still hard work and sort of terrible. And it, you have the situation where they're like, I, we don't really want to build the temple. We're, we're tired. We're exhausted. We've been beat up. This has been a long hard, dark road for our people of exile and homelessness and all this other stuff. And they're kind of complaining, why should we even build the temple when we don't have our own houses? Our crops are struggling. We don't have enough food. We barely have roofs over our heads. We've just begun to kind of rebuild our lives. And now these prophets keep saying we have to rebuild the temple, which was part of the reason why we went off in exile in the first place, because God said we misused the temple, and Jeremiah said we turned it into a den of robbers and thieves. And so I always kind of jokingly call this the uh, the field of dreams theology, and the prophets keep saying, well, look, if you build it, he will come. If you rebuild the temple, it's going to be the sign that you're ready to invite God back into your lives again, because before the temple was destroyed, everybody saw God's presence leave the temple. It was empty. It was vacant. And so this is talking about this time that if you have the courage and the faith to do the hard work and the, the kind of day-to-day drudgery of rebuilding this temple, even in the midst of your own lives not being quite what you want them to be yet, even if your own homes are, are not finished being built, you don't have crops, you don't have food to eat day to day, everything's still kind of a disaster. We're waiting on God. We're wondering, when are you going to show up and pull us out of the muck? Can you still have the courage to rebuild the temple, to show God, yes, we're ready to invite you back into a life of worship? So that's what Zechariah is doing. And in the midst of trying to encourage the people to go and make God the center of their lives again, he's saying, when you do this, and if you do this, God will return to the temple. You're going to see him again. And it talks about these grand visions of what it's going to be like when God finally returns to that temple. And maybe you know the other stories after they, uh, it's in Ezra and Nehemiah, once they actually do build the temple again, the temple... First of all, the older people who actually witnessed the previous temple, they literally weep. They mourn because they're like, this is nothing compared to the previous temple, what we used to have. And yeah, it's great. And yes, it's nice that we have this structure again and we're back in the land. But man, remember what life used to be. Remember how great it used to be. And there's this problem of putting a little too much emphasis perhaps on the past. This is what we had. Yeah, we've got something new. Yeah, God's kind of rebuilding, but it's not good enough and it's not what it used to be. And we're unsatisfied and we're grieving and we're mourning. And there's a, there's an appropriateness, I think, to that grief of loss of what life used to be. But God is challenging his people to look forward. What are you willing to invite me into? How much are you willing to trust me that I will come in and take care of you? And so in the prophecy that we get in Zechariah, which is right around the smack, smack in the middle of the book, it talks about this day that eventually God will come back. What does it say? 
So see, your, co- your king will come to you. So the other problem in Israel right now is that they actually don't have a king. The Davidic king or all of the descendants of the Davidic king, they're gone. They've, they've been lost. They were cut down before the Babylonians took them off into exile. So they have an administrator. They have somebody who's sort of you know governing and kind of seeing over the day-to-day. But again, we used to have a king. We used to have God's presence among us. We used to have this grand temple. We don't have any of that. And so Zechariah says, no. Trust me, rejoice, O daughter Zion. Shout for joy, Jerusalem, because your king is coming. Look, can you see him? He's a long way off, and there's still quite a distance, but he's coming. He's just. He's your savior, but he's also meek, and he's riding on a donkey, on 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 an ass, a colt. He will banish the chariot from Ephraim, which is uh, uh, shorthand for the northern kingdom that was already lost and that they'd been at battle with for so long. The horse from Jerusalem, the warrior's bow will be banished. He'll proclaim peace to the nations, his dominion. It's saying that when God finally comes, when the king finally comes, I don't think it's clear from this prophecy alone that the king is going to be God. There's other prophecies where God kind of makes that clear. But he's saying, how much are you willing to trust? How much are you willing to sort of let go of the way that life used to be to look forward and trust me with the way that life could be, how I want to make things? Um, because I have a lot that, that I want to do. I, I keep thinking about, um, and, and you know, in the prophecy, he's going to cut off all the, all the weapons of battle and violence and warfare. And not only is your game going to come, but you're going to get to be at peace. This is a statement about peace and about God's reign, which will extend, you know, all of his dominion from sea to sea, which is this profoundly beautiful thing. Um, But the two things I keep thinking about with this are, number one, if you know the story of salvation history, this takes a really long time. So that temple that they rebuild in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is the temple that's standing in the time of Jesus, which is hundreds of years later. Um, This is the temple that Jesus actually goes and deals with and interacts with. But by the time of Jesus, nobody ever really saw this prophecy fulfilled. No one saw God come back to the temple. Not only did they not see a king. Yeah, there's a guy named Herod by the time of Jesus, but he's not a Jewish king. He's not Davidic. He's somebody who paid enough money to Caesar that Caesar sold him the position of being quote-unquote king over the Jews. So this is insult to injury. God's presence, no one ever believed, returned to that temple. It was still vacant. It was sitting empty. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the people said, look, we trusted, we built, we did what you wanted us to do. Why is it taking so long? Why won't you show up? And of course, we know that Jesus on Palm Sunday fulfills this prophecy. And he goes and he announces, yeah, I'm back. And actually, even before that, God's return to the temple happens in the uh, the presentation when Jesus is 40 days old, when Simeon, the great prophet, holds Jesus in his hands and says, now my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people. This is the answer to what we've been waiting for for so long. But then Jesus comes years later on Palm Sunday, and essentially what he does is pronounce a curse on this temple. He says, you've made it once again into a den of robbers and thieves, and once again, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. He doesn't go and dwell in the temple. And that's what's sort of fascinating about this, is that Israel puts all this work and trust into rebuilding this temple, and God doesn't really come to dwell there. He comes and uses it as a sign to remind us of all the places where we misput our trust and our faith and our hope. 
you know, a bunch of things that are not God. And it's as if Jesus uses the temple to show our misprioritization of the things of our life. You know, when Jesus is crucified, of course, the veil in the temple, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where they believed God's presence dwelt from the rest of the temple, it was ripped in two. And Josephus, ancient historians talk about this, this veil being like over a foot thick, this massive thing that was this kind of painful reminder to the people of how far away God is from us, how distant we actually are from God. And then what do we see? God comes marching into the temple and he says, no, we need to change our hearts. We need to turn our hearts back to God. This prophecy is a prophecy that I'm struggling with for two reasons. Number one, it's painful how long God waits to fulfill this prophecy. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life, right? Sometimes it feels like we know what we want God to do. We, we know what we think God should do. We even, you know, have real trust in, in desiring holy things. So why is it that in our lives, God often takes so long? It takes such a long time to get it done. And then secondly, the other thing that's troubling to me about this is that this temple that they're asked to rebuild to be the sign of our desire for God to come back, he doesn't even use it. And then all of a sudden, it seems almost like this futile thing. Why did you ask us to do that? Why did you ask us to go through all this work to build this temple just so you could destroy it again? Just so the Romans could then in 70 AD wipe this thing out again. Why did you make us go through the work of doing this? And I keep thinking about all the times in my own life and maybe your life where it feels like you're just kind of going through the motions. And you're doing these things that it seems like God wants us to do. But sometimes God works in our lives in totally different ways. And I keep thinking of the statement from Mother Teresa who said, God doesn't require success. He requires faithfulness. He doesn't ask us to be successful. He asks us to be obedient to what he asks. And sometimes it's the act of obedience itself. It's the act of the building of the thing that God's actually going to use something else. But the act of the obedience that actually changes our hearts and makes us more predisposed to receive him. I don't know. I, I, I don't have any easy answers for this passage, and I kind of wish that this first reading was tied then in the gospel to the Palm Sunday reading, which it's not. It's actually a different reading, but um, it's an interesting passage, and it, it is this great sign of hope in something that's going to take a long time to fulfill, and Israel is going to dwell in, in a certain sort of darkness for a long time before God makes what he promised clear. It's not that God wasn't there prior to this. It got, it's not that God never shows up until Jesus is born. God's presence is there. That's why when the angel announces to Mary what the name of the Messiah will be, he says, Emmanuel, God is with us. Not God will be with you or God was with you and maybe he will again. God is. It's present tense. God is with us whether we see him or not. What are we willing to do to show how much we want to invite him back into our lives? That's really, I think, what this reading is about and in a time when I think a lot of us are sick of pandemics and sick of quarantines and sick of social distancing and, and sick of anger and violence and all the stuff we're seeing on the news and on social media, it feels like we're just drudging and trudging through day to day. And it, it invites us, I think, to ask this question, Lord, when will you show up? Because what I think everybody in, Zach, in the time of Zechariah expected is, okay, well, it's, it's a temple, it's much smaller, and hopefully he'll just come back in the same way that he was in the first one, and then life will go back to normal. But what the first reading is trying to show is that God doesn't merely want life to go back to normal. 
God doesn't want life to just be the way it was, period. God wants to do something new in every age, in every time, and with every human person. And so if you're just sitting around longing for the day that life can all just go back to normal, it probably won't because that's not really how God works. The world has changed with the pandemic and the experience and all this other stuff that's going on and you know the social unrest and racism and all the things that we're sort of experiencing. I don't know if there's going to come a day where things go strictly back to the way they were. But I've been reflecting on the fact that God came into the world and took the identity of a carpenter, which tells me that God is not merely a God who just wants to go back to the way things are, God, or were rather. God is a God of creativity. God is a God who wants to build, who wants to create. And the God who came as a carpenter doesn't want to just peg us back to the way things were. He wants to do something new. The beauty of Zechariah is that as he's giving these prophecies, Zechariah has no idea how these things are going to be fulfilled because he couldn't have even dreamt how the words that he spoke were ultimately going to be fulfilled on Palm Sunday, but then for the next week, culminating in the death and then resurrection and ascension and glorification of the king who would come riding on the donkey. We can't even imagine what God wants to do. And sometimes we think so small, we just want to go back to the way it used to be. But that's not what this prophecy is about. It's about how much are you willing to trust me, which I think is a great segue into Psalm 145. And Psalm 145, again, it's coming toward the tail end of the Psalter. I think it's the fifth from the last Psalm. It says, I will praise your name forever, my King and my God. I will praise your name forever, my King and my God. And there's, there's a couple things with this. Um, it's a hymn, obviously this, this is a hymn singing and extolling the virtues uh, uh, and the glory of the ways in which God has ruled his people and shown his face to us all throughout the course of salvation history. It's appropriate that it's coming toward the end of the Psalter because it's now beginning to capture and look back and say, look at all of the ways in which God has done this. If you understand the story of where you've come from, it should actually make you want to anticipate the great things that are yet to come. The other thing that's kind of cool about this psalm is that it takes the form of what's called an acrostic. And in an acrostic hymn, every line, you don't see this in English, but if you were reading in Hebrew, you would. Each line of the psalm starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? So the first line starts with A, second line with B, third line with C, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And built into the literary nature of this is basically a psalm, not only in the words that it's saying, but in the way in which it's saying it is declaring that from A to Z, from beginning to end, from C to C, right? God is faithful. And so we should praise his name forever, our King and our God, extol him because, you know, all the way from A to Z, from beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, God has got all of it under control and look at what he has done, which should give you hope to look toward what he will do. Even if you're dwelling in the darkness, even if you're dwelling in the middle, again, go back to the people of the first reading, even if you're dwelling in the midst of the situation, where you're like, things are dark, they're not what they used to be, we're weirdly exiled, life is kind of, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm recording this, you know, again, in early July, July 2nd, 2020, which is this strange moment in time where things are kind of beginning to go back to normal a little bit, and things are kind of opening up, and stores, and restaurants, and things, but we're still kind of in the middle of crisis, and now there's I don't know, resurgences of, of the virus and stuff. And we're like stuck in this weird in-between. 
and we want to be, you know, maybe done with all the noise and the nonsense and anger and violence and stuff on social media and in the world, but we're still not quite out of it. We're, we're stuck in the middle. We're perpetually in the middle, which is where Israel is. We're not quite in exile anymore. That's sort of done, but the exile is not really over yet either. And even though they're in the promised land, we still haven't quite gotten to the other side of it. They won't get into the other side of it for a long time yet to come. And maybe you could say we're not fully out of it until Jesus comes again and sets us free. But yet, yet, living in the middle, in the in-between, so to speak, we see that from past to future, from A to Z, God is always faithful. And so we can praise him. We can extol his name. We can bless him because we know who God is. And even in the midst of darkness or in the middle of kind of being stuck in the in-between, which is different than the upside down, but stuck in the in-between, we can still be at peace because we know not exactly what God is going to do, but we know that he is there and we know that he is building. Again, the good carpenter that he is, he's building something new for us and he asks for us to participate in that. Which leads us into Romans chapter 8, I think. I think it's actually a good segue. And we're, we're still, we've been here for a few weeks in Paul's kind of... Uh, Ferberino, I suppose you could say, the, the sort of middle part of Romans, all of chapter 5 through chapter 8, is, I think, the, the sort of centerpiece to Paul's theology, where he's talking about, okay, this is who you were, this is what sin did to humanity, and this is what Jesus has done to bring you out of it. How do you access that? Well, as he said the last couple of weeks, through baptism. And so coming kind of hot off of what he said last week about the baptism that saves you, that that's the means through which... You have died to your own old self, died to the ways of sin of your past, and been risen again to newness of life so that you can go and not be afraid of anything, quite frankly. Now he comes and he says this, brothers and, sister, brothers and sisters, you are not in the flesh. Flesh, the word for flesh in Greek is the word sarks, sarks. It's actually where we get the word sarcasm from, which... The word for sarcasm is like a tearing of the flesh, which as someone who has used sarcasm for most of my life, I always get a little bit uh, freaked out by how harsh of a term that actually is. But um, you are not in the sarks. You are not in the flesh. On the contrary, you're in the spirit. Why? Because he's already explained to them, the audience he's speaking to, in the uh, um, ecclesia, in the church of Rome, that's struggling with all sorts of their own problems. And they're kind of stuck in their own in-between, right? Because they are having ethnic racial struggles and they're fighting and there's arguing and there was violence. And one group of Christians have actually been expelled from Rome and now allowed to come back. And they're trying to figure out what it means to live together because we share Jesus, but we don't share culture and we don't share ethnicity and we don't share these pasts. So we're trying to figure out what it means to actually live in harmony with each other. And Paul says, you have to figure this out because it's a matter of God's integrity, because he is bigger than the world. He's bigger than these ethnic divides that you have. He's bigger than these cultures. Not that he doesn't see them. It's not that God doesn't care about ethnicity. It's not that God doesn't care about culture. It's not that God doesn't care about your past or family or heritage. It's that he transcends them, which means he's big enough to encompass all of them. I can take all of these things. And Paul says to the church in Rome, you need to get your head around that because your job is to be a light to the world. The world needs to see you and see that you, not you, but that God through you has done the unthinkable, which is united people from disparate backgrounds, 
different ethnicities, different cultures, different classes, different gender, different all sorts of things. And you are one. You are unified through him, despite all of the things the world says you need to be fighting about. Despite all of the reasons the world says you need to hate that group of people and that group needs to hate this group of people. Paul says the Christian absorbs that and takes it to death and lives out the risen to new life nature of their baptism. When Paul says you are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, um, there's been a, a huge debate and I think a profound misunderstanding for years and years about this passage. Paul is not comparing being in bodies, like fleshly in the sense that I'm embodied, with being spiritual. It's not Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this ancient idea that was that was uh, still being sort of about to be born in the time that Paul's writing this. There's, there's inklings of it, but it's not full-fledged yet. But one of the things that Gnosticism said was that really only the spiritual things are good. Material things, physical things matter. It's bad, and that drags you down, and that's where your sin comes out. And, you know, bodily things and things of the flesh, that's where all the sin is. What you need to focus on is transcendence and just spiritual things. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's a misunderstanding of Paul. When he says you're not in the flesh, he doesn't mean you're not embodied. You still have bodies. We will have bodies for all of eternity because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' body mattered. It wasn't an afterthought. He says that you're not in the flesh in the sense that you are not defined by what your appetites want. You're not defined by what your belly says. Your body is not your God. Your body is good. Your embodiedness is profound. Jesus took on human flesh. Flesh is a neutral thing. But when you make it into the God that defines everything you do, when you demand, when your, your belly and your appetites and your temptations all basically demand and color every decision you make, yeah, that's really bad. That's where you're not anymore. That's what you have died to. One of the many things that you've died to in baptism. Rather, only if the God, if only the Spirit of God dwells in you, whoever does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. Your neutral, mortal, frail, get tired, get pimples sometimes, fall on our face when we can't do it anymore, those bodies because of the Spirit that dwells in us. So he says, consequently, brothers and sisters, you're not debtors to the flesh. You're not enslaved to your flesh, to your body, to live according to the flesh. Don't let it be the judge. Don't let it be the guide. For you live according, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And really what he's saying is we have the opportunity for the spirit to transform and um, become the, the dunamis, the dynamic that actually um, animates our body and animates everything that we do so that we don't have to be slaves to our bodies, but we can actually allow Jesus through the Holy Spirit to guide our bodies in the things that we do because you've already died to yourself. You don't need to be a slave to all of these things. You don't need to be a slave to the darkness and the temptations and the fear and the anguish and the anxiety and the hatred and all of these other things that the world thinks it defines us that the world thinks will be the determining factor for everything that happens to us. Paul says the determining factor for everything that happens to you is not your external circumstances. The determining factor for everything that happens to you is the degree to which you allow the Holy Spirit to animate you, which actually he says, quite frankly, what that does, says, 
If only the Spirit of God dwells in you. Where did the Spirit of God dwell in the Old Testament? It dwelt in the temple, in the tabernacle. It's the word tabernacle. The Spirit of God tabernacled in the temple, in the tabernacle, literally. So what this is saying is the new temple that God has been asking Israel to build from the beginning is the temple that is awaiting his glorious spirit to come into us. We are the temple. We are the thing, the structure, so to speak, that Jesus has come to, humble, riding on a donkey, on an ass, asking us for permission to enter, to um, animate, to bring life to. We are what Zechariah was talking to. Yes, he goes to the physical building of the temple. And yes, God asked a certain amount of obedience to Israel. Are you willing to do this work to show that everything in your life is directed toward me and who I want you to be? But then I'm going to go beyond that. And I'm going to go beyond the physical structure building, which they have also in a certain sense made into a God. And I'm going to go past it and I'm going to go straight into you. And I'm going to come into you eucharistically through flesh and blood that you eat and dine on if you let me. But if you do let me and if you let my spirit animate you, then it changes everything. And then the circumstances that you're in, even though you haven't seen the veil lifted on them, even though you haven't seen where things are headed yet, even though you haven't seen all of what I am building and what the temple of your life is going to look like, you can live without anxiety. You can live without fear, at peace, because you know what the reality is, because you know who you are. And who are you? You're a temple of the living God. You are the place that the Holy Spirit tabernacles, because you are what Zechariah was talking about. You are what Haggai was talking about. You are what Ezekiel prophesied about. Jesus, the true temple, the presence of God among us, has now templed among us, which is kind of complicated, maybe a little bit abstract, but um, I think that does lead us into our final reading into the gospel. And the gospel is coming from, where are we at? Gospel's coming from Matthew chapter 11. So we're, uh, we've jumped a little bit. We're, we're trudging through this kind of middle part of Matthew, and we've jumped a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit about the context that we come into this story at. So Matthew 11, where we pick it up, says, At that time, Jesus exclaimed, the at that time is, a, is a, a marker that says we need to take note of what that time is. In other words, we need to remember what has been happening prior to this. Because the fact that Mark's, Matthew says at that time, in that context, at that moment, after having said those things, Jesus exclaimed and prayed to God in this way. If we don't know what those things are, then we're going to miss something that he says. So at that time, Jesus exclaimed, and this is beautiful. This is one of the, I think, only two times in the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew lets us into Jesus's prayer life. He allows us entrance into the conversation between Jesus and his Father. He says, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This actually sounds an awful lot like Jesus paraphrasing Psalm 145. He actually is, he's doing what Psalm 45 asks. He is praising and extolling his Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. He says, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you've revealed them to the little ones. Some translations of that can be the infants, the little babies. 
He says, yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, uh, have been handed over to me by my Father. Nobody knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. So come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Where we've come from here is uh, a little discourse about John the Baptist. And at the very beginning of this section, I think it's at the beginning of chapter 11, we have, so where we left off, let's put it this way, where we left off last time in the podcast, in our readings, the last two weeks really, were Jesus giving instructions to his disciples as they are to go out and proclaim the kingdom. That they're going to go into all these towns and villages, some will receive them, some will reject them, here's how to proceed, here's how to bring peace upon the houses. But no, Jesus says that, there's not only peace coming, there's going to be division, there's going to be strife, there's going to be the sword. People will hate you. Um, family members might even turn on you. The state will turn against you and you will have to take up your cross, which is the uh, well-designed torture instrument that Rome reserved exclusively for traitors to the empire. Jesus says this is not going to be pretty. And then they go out and they begin to do all these things and they heal and they minister and they proclaim the kingdom. Then we hear about John the Baptist and John the Baptist hears all these things that are happening while he's sitting in prison. And he's like, Jesus, what about me? Are you the one who's going to restore Israel or should we wait for somebody else? John, I think, knows perfectly well who Jesus is, but John is frustrated, I think. There's different interpretations on this, but this is mine. John is frustrated because he's stuck in the in-between. He says, I was your herald. I was the herald of the Messiah. I proclaimed that he was coming. I am now sitting in uh, a prison cell now at the, at the charge of Herod because I spoke truth to him. And now I'm sitting in a prison cell and I'm seeing that you're doing all of these good works in the world, but I'm stuck here and I am awaiting my fate and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And I see you doing all these things and I know enough about salvation history and I know enough about my cousin Jesus that you can get me out of here. So should we wait for somebody else or have you forgotten your cousin? I don't know, that's kind of the tone that I hear in Jesus. And he says to John, he's like, look, go and tell him that the prophets are being fulfilled. He says, go and tell him the blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of good news proclaimed to them. He is quoting Isaiah and Isaiah's description of all the things that are gonna happen when the Messiah finally comes. He says, all of these things are happening. The world is literally being turned upside down, says Jesus. But as the world is being turned upside down, John is sitting in a prison cell, waiting the moment that maybe he's wishing things could go back to the way that they were. Maybe he's looking forward to the way that things might be in the future. But the point is, he's stuck in the in-between. He's stuck in the middle. He knows who he is. He knows who Jesus is. He sees what's going on. And he doesn't perhaps see how the story is going to end. And so he has the honesty. I love this about John, that John has the honesty to ask Jesus point blank. He's like, what's the deal, man? I, I put my faith in you. I was your herald. I did these things. At least this is how I'm hearing John. Are you the one who's to come or should we look for somebody else? Like, is it somebody else that we should put our faith in? Or are you really who you say you are? And Jesus respects profoundly that honesty and that trust and he says, yeah, here's the answer. Let me show you. Let me begin to let you see. And then we know actually from here, John the Baptist is going to be martyred. And so thus begins his entrance into the heavenly temple of God. 
because he actually lived out well his identity of an earthly temple. And then Jesus goes on before this to talk about who John the Baptist was. Do you realize who this was? Do you realize that this was Elijah? Do you realize how amazing what John actually saw, did rather? So many people came to see John and listen to him and be baptized by him. But do you know who this guy was? And then he begins, <coughs> excuse me, to call out this generation and all of the people around him who are hearing and seeing the things that he's doing and still rejecting and still ignoring and still not paying attention. I love what he says uh, a few verses before we get. He says, what should I compare this generation to? It's like children who sit in the marketplaces and call to one another. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't mourn. John came neither eating or drinking, and they said he was possessed by a demon. The son of man, me, came eating and drinking, and they said, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. We can't win, is the bottom line. And I love his description of that generation because I think it's so similar to ours. We don't rejoice over the things that we ought to rejoice in. And we do not grieve properly over the things that we ought to grieve over. We don't rejoice over the things that we ought to rejoice over. And we do not grieve over the things that we ought to grieve over. Which is a bit of a generalization. I guess you can fill in in your own life or your view of the news or current events the things that you want to apply in those places. But I think the words that Jesus says are fairly, uh, they, they span time and place. And they do, I think, apply to, at least they apply to me. And they apply to things in my life. And they apply to things that I'm seeing in the world. We don't rightly rejoice when there is justice done, when there is a child of God born into the kingdom, when there is a person who receives Jesus and repents of their sin. We don't really rejoice when we see good, even when it's small, and even when there's overwhelming bad news, we don't rejoice in those good things. And then I don't think we properly grieve over real injustice, over real hardship, over over real racism, over real pain of things like abortion. I think we politicize things, we weaponize things, but I don't know if we mourn for things. And if we can't truly mourn over evil, I don't know if we can truly rejoice over the good. But Jesus is saying that in the midst of the in-between, in the midst of being stuck in the middle from where I've brought you from and where I have yet to take you, you've got to see reality for what it is. And if we see reality for what it is, which is that Jesus Christ has conquered the world, that he has defeated death, that he has defeated darkness and evil, even though we don't fully feel it yet, then we can live in this life in sanity, right? We can actually walk through our world not paralyzed by fear and anxiety like so many of us do. And that's why Jesus says, look, I've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Not because Jesus is mean or malicious. That's what it says in our gospel reading today. I hid these things from the wise and the learned. Shh, don't tell them. It's the idea of things being hidden, not because Jesus wants to keep things from us, but that Jesus sometimes needs us to work a little harder to find where the truth is. He needs us to sift through the noise of the world to find what is truth. He says, you know, knock and the door will be open. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. But the problem is we don't often want to seek. We want our phones to tell us the answer, right? We want to look up Wikipedia or Google it and just get the clean answer. How do I respond to these things happening in the world? How do I make sense over all these different pieces of news or blogs or podcasts that are telling me all these contradicting things? How do we make sense of it? Because the world is a world in total confusion. 
And Jesus says, look, I've actually hidden the truth from the wise and the learned. Not in the way that you will never find it and I want to keep it from you, but in the way that you really need to seek. And so if you feel like me, paralyzed by the news and paralyzed by social media and you don't know who to trust and this news says one thing and that person says another thing and everything seems in conflict, turn off your phone, shut off your computer, go to the church, go to the chapel, go to a quiet place in your house, open the scriptures, read them, reflect on them, bring silence into your life, actually take the time to seek and to knock and to ask. Don't ask Google. Don't seek out, you know, your friends' opinions on Facebook, but really seek the Lord. Maybe that sounds trite, and maybe I'm just speaking and preaching to the choir, but I'm speaking to myself, I think, more than anything else, because it's the little ones who he says he's revealed these things to. And when we become little, when we become quiet, when we take our refuge in him and his identity and his love for us, that is, from A to Z, like Psalm 145 said, then we will begin to see not just truth, but sanity and be able to alleviate some of our anxiety because Jesus says, look, I know the Father's will. I know the Father. If you want to know the Father, I'm the way in. And if you know the Father, you know me. And if you know me, you know the Father because the Father has given me access. And if you come to me, all you who are labor and burdened and beat up and in darkness and sad about the things that you've lost and not knowing where the future is going, come to me. Take my yoke, and the yoke, we've talked about this many times on the podcast, one of the contexts for yoke in the first century in rabbinic teaching was my words, my interpretation of the world, my, um, my proclamation to you of what God wants from you in your life. Because the Bible's long, the Bible's complicated, there's lots of rules, there's lots of laws. Jesus says, my insight on the word of God is easy. And my burden is light. It's not going to be simple. And you're going to have to work. And there's going to be some obedience required. But I will let you have something that you can manage. So that you can work your way through. Again, I keep coming back to this idea that why did Jesus choose to be born into the family of a carpenter? If not to show us, I am create, I'm a creative God. And I'm a creative Messiah. And I'm not satisfied just going back to the way that things used to be. I want to build something new, and I want to invite you into that process. That's what Zechariah is inviting all of Israel to do in the first reading, and that's, I think, what Jesus is inviting us to do in the gospel, but also in every moment of our lives. So that's a great place to end. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we will be back soon. Uh, we love you guys. Please pray for us. Please, if you have a chance, rate us and review us on iTunes. It helps us spread the word about this podcast. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.